Talk Back Matters from the Salvos. How much do we really know about our Aboriginal brothers and sisters? What were you taught about them in primary school, in high school? Mike Frost is a director of Tinley Institute and he shares insights into these amazing First Nation people and some things that we weren't taught at school back in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, well, look, I was a I was a kid in primary school in the 60s and back in those days... Um, yeah, we used to learn some pretty patronising things about uh, about the uh, original inhabitants of of this island. Um, we used to like, uh, particularly, we all got a copy of a thing called the Dreamtime, which was a, a book that was written by um, a couple of white guys and illustrated by a white man. Uh, but they had appropriated the the Dreamtime myths. Um, and to give them their due as accurately as as, uh, they felt that they could at the time. But the way these things were kind of taught to us was pretty much like, aren't these lovely, kind of quaint, charming stories from almost childlike, simple people that uh, used to live in this country? And it was kind of patronising. It was... was, uh, a kind of a, a very superior sense in which let's have a look at these kind of uh, almost children's stories. Well, we, they were taught to us as children. So they kind of reinforced this idea that there was something kind of unsophisticated about the original uh, inhabitants of Australia. And it's anything but unsophisticated, isn't it? Well, it's, it, indeed it is. In fact, uh, there's a, a richness and a, a complexity and a sophistication to a great deal of, uh, of uh, Aboriginal culture generally, but uh, certainly specifically to their uh, creation stories, as well as the, the, the kind of um, canon of storytelling that had been gathered over, over generations. So, I mean, you know, the, uh, the original writers of, uh, of that book, Charles Mountford and the, the, the painter Ainsley Roberts, did spend time uh, in, in uh, Central Australia. But I mean, by the time we were looking at it in schools, we were all suburban kids. And I mean, you know, I, I didn't meet an Aboriginal person until I was, you know, in adulthood. So yeah. there's also a sense in which these were invisible people to us. These were kind of other people. Uh, we didn't know them. We didn't engage with them. Uh, there was no evidence or any trace, it seems to us, of their of them previously having inhabited the, the, the place where we were living. And so... In a way, it was sort of like mythic stories from a, a kind of a mythical people. Yeah. My experience of Aboriginals when I was at school, there was one Aboriginal boy in our whole school in uh, Brisbane, Virginia, David Scully. I even remember his name, and I used to see uh-huh. him walking alone all the time, and I used to say uh-huh. hello to him and try to become his friend, um, but I never, ever saw him with anyone else. Well, I mean, uh, I grew up in Manly uh, on Sydney's uh, northern beaches, and uh, you know, it was kind of the the second uh, place, so to speak, that was kind of named or, uh, or, or or taken possession of after Sydney Cove when Arthur Phillip uh, rode across the harbour and. We all knew, we all heard that our town was called Manly because of the Manly Aboriginals who kind of speared Arthur Phillip when he arrived. And and the story we got told was that they were the kind of the ferocious tribe of Aboriginals and all the other Aboriginals were kind of yeah, passive and and melted away into the into the bush and were easily overcome. All the kind of mythic stories about Aboriginals as being very kind of passive and uh, and unengaged, which is a, a terribly 
kind of racist and inaccurate depiction of them. But it wasn't until like years and years later I discovered the true story of Manly and the spearing of Arthur Philip and uh, the way Benelong was involved in brokering that that uh, that spearing as a kind of a, a sort of a, a payback from you know, the Aboriginal communities around the harbour to. Uh, to offset their anger at the, the dispossession of their land. I mean, it makes it a very uh, much more complicated story. And actually, it makes it a story of two nations kind of coming into conflict with each other. Whereas the story we got was, oh, you know, we come from the land where the the, the, the only Aboriginals who ever kind of fought back happened to live. And so, I mean, that leads us into the complete uh, covering up of all the stories of the frontier wars and uh and conflict between uh, colonists and and uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, um, all of that was completely papered over. I didn't hear about any of that uh, as part of the history of uh, of my country. We're talking to Mike Frost, director of Tinley Institute. I have an awesome respect for the land cultivation skills. That uh, I I didn't have any idea just how um, how involved. Uh, Aboriginal uh, nations were in in like tending and improving the terrain until you know a few years ago I read Bill Gamage's book The Biggest Estate on Earth and I mean honestly I was like flabbergasted I just thought I had no clue that that uh, Indigenous peoples uh, actually had um, had engaged so expertly in land management I mean. Again, the kind of the, the myth that we all got was it was just a you know a wilderness. It was just a completely untamed kind of scrub and bushland, or you know further out west uh, desert. You know there was there was nothing going on, and uh, and we had to come in and clear it and turn it into farmland or whatever the case may be. But you know you know here I am I'm, I'm in my late fifties now, and it's only been a few years ago that I'm actually discovering just the extraordinary expertise that. Uh, First Nations people had regarding um, land management and the use of burning, and uh, I mean to, to such a degree that uh, some of the first uh, colonists uh, would arrive in so-called, you know, un, uncharted territory and discover what they, it looked to them like a a garden, you know, a, a place that had actually been in some way clearly managed and uh, and trees had been cleared and that uh, there was open areas and. Uh, um, they discovered, of course, this was this was kind of ancient wisdom that the original inhabitants had uh, had uh, embraced and learned and passed on. And I mean, further, not not just land management. I mean, there was there was actual evidence of you know towns and communities. And again, the story we always got was you know these were just people wandering around and uh, and living in humpies. And yeah, so I mean, look, I just I feel I hope that our schools are doing more about this, but I certainly think that those of us who have long since left school need to make sure that we're we're focused on kind of relearning uh, the true history of this land. Yeah, but I think Australia is rising up and recognizing these people in in a way that is very encouraging for me to see. Don't you? I agree, and I I mean. Even though I'm saying you know it's come late in the piece, uh, the at least it's come, it's, right? It's at least it's come, and I mean books like Dark Emu, which I think has been like a you know a a really successful book just recently, um, has like really marvelously uh, you know retold um, uh, the story of of Aboriginal culture. So if, if people, if your listeners haven't read Dark Emu by Bruce Pascoe, I really encourage them to get hold of it. 
That's Mike Frost, director of Tinley Institute. He's written a great article about this in the latest Selvo's War Cry magazine. You can get a copy from your local Selvo's church.